welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. My guest today is Jason Less, CEO of Riot Blockchain. Riot is one of the largest publicly traded Bitcoin miners in the world, with a current hash rate capacity of 4.8 exahashes and an expected self-mining capacity of 12.6 exahashes by Q1 2023. The Bitcoin mining industry is notoriously competitive, and that is especially the case right now in the fall of 2022, as a confluence of factors conspire to reveal which among them are capable of weathering the storm. As such, I thought now would be a perfect time to have Jason on to discuss his story, how he thinks about building strong, resilient Bitcoin mining operations, and the broad and massive implications of this burgeoning new industry. Enjoy. There we go. Jason, how are you? I'm good, John. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for uh, making the time for this discussion. I know you're an extremely busy man these days, um, much of which we'll hopefully discuss and uh, lots going on in the industry besides just what you guys are working on. So um, maybe to get this kicked off for anyone who's not familiar with you, you can just give a, a brief introduction. Sure. Uh, my name is Jason Less. I'm the CEO of Riot Blockchain. Riot is a publicly traded Bitcoin mining company listed on NASDAQ. We um, started in 2017. So I joined the company back then on the advisory board. And we have charged through over the past five years. And today we own and operate uh, the largest single uh, Bitcoin mining facility in North America. I'm pretty sure the world at this point. And we have one of the leading hash rates uh, for Bitcoin mining and a pretty massive uh, growth plan underway. I know you've told this story a million times, but it is kind of unique. So prior to getting involved in all this Bitcoin stuff, you were a professional poker player, were you not? Yeah. So I went to school for computer science. And uh, while I was at school, I discovered the world of Internet poker. And it was super intriguing to me because what I learned about poker very quickly is it's just a game of you against the other people at the table. It's not you against the house like many other casino games are, where the odds are, are really just stacked against you. There's no long-term way to win. But in poker, you really just needed to have a better strategy and play better than the other people at the table. So that was super interesting to me. And that, while well, I still completed my degree, that led me to a about 14-year career as a professional poker player. And that was ultimately how I discovered Bitcoin. What's life like as a professional poker player? Because, you know, most of us have played a game or two or poker in the past. And, you know, some of us may have even known some friends that maybe got a little too far into it, you know, because back, I don't know, a decade, a decade and a half ago when it really burst on the scene and everyone was playing online poker all the time, it was super popular. And I, I, I personally know some, we used to get together for a game every now and then, and that was fun. But some of my friends got sucked into it all a little bit too much and it ended up being not such a great influence in their life. And so for someone who's at it full time, you know, what's life like? Do you, do you have to really manage your, your cognitive abilities and therefore like you're on a tight diet and exercise and sleeping regimen, or is it more because you're in environments that are, you know, like Vegas perhaps, or like gambling environments that often come with a lot of other enticements? Is it kind of a chaotic lifestyle? Like, what was it like for you? I mean, I think there's different, there's different degrees to it, Dale. I think there's different types of professionals. So one type of professional might be the guy who's in the casino all the time and he's, you know, building relationships with bad players and he's drinking and 
you know, eating in the casino all day, every day, taking smoke breaks, et cetera. That is one type of professional. And I know guys who are very successful doing that. That wouldn't be a lifestyle for me, but that's one approach. I came from more of the internet poker background where I was, I mean, there's always a component to playing in casinos uh, here and there, especially as I got very good towards the end of my career and I was playing in these very high stakes tournaments. But my career really came from an internet poker background where I just sat at a computer and I played and then I was done. I did something else and came back. And in that regard, it's, it's very much like a real job or very much like a, well, remote work wasn't really much of a thing right. in uh, you know the early 2000s when I, when I was starting, but you can kind of think of it as like a, a, a trader, you know, you're, you're, if you're trading stocks, you're can generally just be working from home on your computer. There's different ideal hours to play. And in the off hours, you're studying, you're talking to people, uh, et cetera. I always was pretty good about, um, my diet and, uh, fitness, although nothing crazy. Uh, but I, I, I think I was above average, at least in the internet poker community about that, which isn't a very high bar, but I, I would say I was above <laughs> average. And that that's what it was. The, the real key difference, though, I would say, is from, a, from maybe trading or normal jobs is the hours can kind of get all over the place. Now, I tried to be very focused on the hours I would play. You know, at some points in my career, I'd be like, okay, I'm playing noon to 5 p.m., take a dinner break, play seven to midnight or something like that. And then at some point I was literally playing eight to 5 PM every day. And then at some points I was playing crazy sleep schedules all over the place. So I would move my schedule around what made sense for where the most money was available. But I was always like big on consistency. I was always really trying to wake up at the same time, trying to go better at the same time, having a daily schedule. And I think that type of discipline and routine is very important to success in poker, but successful in anything as well. Sure. And, uh, you know, the final commentary I'll add about playing internet poker is, or poker in general, there's so much variance in your results. It's not like, you, you, yes, it's, it's great not to have to go to an office every day and really have the freedom not to work every day if you really didn't want to, but you are, you're trading that for a lot of volatility on your, 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 your paycheck. There's no guarantee. The only way you are ultimately getting paid money in poker is if you are earning it. If you are doing a good job at what you're doing and um, getting those results over a long run. But in the short run, there's lots of volatility and you could be getting bad luck and you could be losing money for months, for, for even year. I mean, I, I've never lost money for, for, for more than a few a few months, but there are people that have losing years, for example. And um, that is a lot of unpredictability to, to deal with for a lot of people. So there's different scales of that unpredictability as well. But I, I think I always did a good job of keeping it uh, pretty consistent. And man, when, when you play poker, it's really, really your whole life. You are, your friends are in poker. I mean, I have friends outside of poker uh, too, of course, but it's, you're talking about it all the time. You're thinking about it because it's that passion that makes you good. I sounds like something else like we know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And for a lot of the reasons I'm talking about, I felt like it was such a natural evolution uh, into Bitcoin. So I don't know. I feel like I'm just kind of rambling at this point. No, There's so many different directions. No, it's super interesting. It's super interesting. I'm, I'm wondering, like, and as you say, there's a lot of parallels, but with something that's so 
potentially emotionally triggering, right? Big losses, big wins. How is it, how would you manage the inevitable emotional ups and downs? And how would you even determine what kind of a success or win rate is acceptable? Because, you know, if it starts going in the opposite direction, is there increased anxiety that, you know, you no longer have the skill or you're, you're not staying up to standard with the existing competitors? Like how I, I, I got to imagine the psychological component, not only of playing, but of being a professional player and the, the kind of lifestyle and requirements that come with that required some thought at the very least, no? Yeah. I mean, what you're describing is like the mental side, the mental game of poker, which is so critical. Um, you know, poker is a game with so many different possible outcomes and scenarios that can happen when you're playing. The, the combinations of cards is infinite. And what you have to, a delicate balance of having confidence in the strategy that you're employing and not waving from that strategy just based on short-term variance and card distribution, but also having the uh, self-honesty to always be assessing your game and making changes if needed. And, you know, I know those two things kind of sound in conflict with each other because I'm saying, hey, stay the course with your strategy, but also be willing to change. It's just a very delicate balance you have to strike there. So um, it, it also can be very tough when you go on these losing streaks, which are just absolutely unavoidable. Like every year I had a losing streak, however many months it would last, every year that happens. And I'm, I'm telling you, no matter what, and as confident as I was in my abilities, you other pros will, t- will say this too, is you will get to this point and you'll just be like, oh my God, have I just been lucky this whole time? Do I actually have no idea what I'm doing? And not like that's a, that's a self-doubt that manifests itself for a long time, but it's something that goes through your mind and you have to kind of fight through that. And um, doing that over time, I think, develops a personal perseverance in the face of things outside of your control. Mm-hmm. And it, it really bu- builds an internal stability that, you know, keeps you um, confident in your decision-making and focused on whatever your strategy is. Does, does interfacing with these probabilities so much, so the probabilities in a given hand, in a given game, but even as you mentioned, in a given year, having, you know, the, have having the probabilities act in such a way that you go through a losing stretch, even though you're executing the same strategy, has that influenced at all how you think about probabilities, the nuance, the depths, even something beyond probabilities, like ideas of, of fate or anything like that? Like I'm just pure curiosity about interfacing with probabilities so much and what kind of an impact that, that would have on how you think about them. The, the main thing that it, it makes me think about is um, what, if, if I'm doing something that has that level of, of volatility around the different probabilities, how am I, I mean, for no better word, bankrolled for that decision. Mm. So, and you can apply that to other things as well. So I, I you know, if there's something that has a high variance, um, marginal uh, positive expected value, okay, that still may be a good decision. And I'm going to face wildly different uh, outcomes of the probabilities over uh, executing that decision. But if I have the bankroll to withstand those volatilities, it's completely fine. That's something that I think you you learn in poker is because you see, so you don't have a different view on probabilities. You don't start to, you know, I don't know, have a 
ha- have a resentment or like you, you start thinking uh, crazy things about probabilities, you, you get enforced that the math is the math. Right. It's, but, but you want to make sure that you are bankrolled to survive all the variance and outcomes that are going to come as you're making that decision. So as you kind of touched on, it's a function of what your expected value is or win rate is and what is the variance of that decision. And there's lots of tools in poker to show you that. Yeah. Or, you know, in poker, you can put input, what is my variance in the games I'm playing? What is my vari- What is my win rate? And then what is my expected volatility on that? Um, on, on, you know, on what, how much money do I need on a 95% confidence interval never to go broke on, on this decision? And you, you start thinking about different things in your life that way. Like, okay, what you become more comfortable with risk, but understanding how you need to be bankrolled around that risk. Would you start kind of assigning probabilities to everything outside of poker when you're so immersed in it? Like you're walking around in your daily life and you just, you know, random things you like the probability just pops up or at least, you know, an, an estimated probability. Uh, you, not, not to that, like, you know, my new de- detail, but you know, within your social circle and, and, and poker friends, like everyone's talking about things and probability all the time. Right. Um, you know, so I'll start with one simple example. I, I, I follow, there's this like, uh, live streaming cheating controversy in poker right now. And everyone's saying like, what percentage they think this individual was cheating or not. So no one's saying yes or no. Everyone's like, uh, 65% cheated, 35% not. Right. And then I, that's one example. Then I was, what I was originally going to say is, you know, amongst your poker friends, you're talking about things and, you know, if there's disagreements, or if there's different viewpoints, you're looking at things and probabilities, and that's how all these bets get started. Hey, I think I could do this. What probability? And then you have, you know, bet around it. I, I, uh, I forgot what, what it was. I think one time we were at, like, at a restaurant, and a guy was like, I think I can get our waitress's phone number. And it's like, okay, what's the probability of that? And then how are we going to structure a, a bet around the probability of that happening? And so that kind of stuff kicks off like that gambling, um, that structured gambling bone inside of you is just always working even outside of poker. Right. And we'll definitely get into a lot of the the juicy parallels between not only Bitcoin mining itself, but managing a Bitcoin mining company with all the details required to do so, especially in this landscape. I'm sure you've got to be, you know, making those probabilistic uh, t- decisions many, t- you know, in many different areas of that. And, you know, as you say about kind of, um, gambling with other people that are thinking this way. It's so fascinating to think of, you know, the potential future of prediction markets in something like Bitcoin, because now you're assigning probabilities, but you're also giving them an economic weight, which changes their probability. Because if something has sufficient economic weight, dependent upon the environment that it's presuming to act within, that could incentivize people to bring it about, you know, and the more economic weight, the more the more potential that it's brought about intentionally. And so then you get into this really weird thing where like, well, do prediction markets become open markets for fill in the blank event or action to be taken? You know, like if someone mm-hmm. opened a, you know, made a prediction and put a hundred million dollars on it, that, I don't know, a statue was going to be taken down in the middle of the night on, you know, November 11th or, or November 11th or something like that. I mean, at what point does it cross the barrier from being, you know, a probabilistic guess to incentivizing the the direct action? And, you know, that's just a a mind fart, but it's interesting to think how now that we have something like Bitcoin and how easy it is to transact and how 
how capital can flow so easily, how opportunities, if you want to call them that, because they could, they could certainly be threats, but opportunities like that could emerge in, in the future we're moving into. Yeah, man. I mean, this discussion is so interesting to me, like stepping back just briefly, you know, the parallels between poker and then what I, I do with Riot and, you know, Bitcoin in general, a lot of the skill I believe I developed in poker over overlaps there. But the way you're asking me about it and talking about it is like a part of my brain that I feel like hasn't been tapped in a while. Like <laughs> I haven't done interviews about poker stuff. Like you know, people will ask, like you know, what's your biggest hand? What you know, what's the tournament you played? All, all, all those those type of things. But like talking about this kind of stuff and thinking about that back to those years is something I, I haven't really dove down in, into in a while. But yeah, there's a lot of parallels to business. There's lots of parallels to Bitcoin mining. Uh, to, to Bitcoin in general, I, I kind of feel like the, you know, we, we've been talking about variance, volatility, that makes what I experienced with poker makes experiencing that in this Bitcoin so much easier. So I'm talking about price action, yeah. you know, like people talk about the volatility in, in Bitcoin. And I guess if you're used to trading, you know, bonds, equities, it, it's, it, it is very volatile, but I'm like, this is nothing like I'm used to these swings up and down all the time. No problem. Like with with the confidence and the investment thesis of what I believe about Bitcoin and what I believe its potential is, the the price is just a number on the screen. I I don't mean to discount it too much because it does have a big financial impact. But what it does not impact is my belief about Bitcoin. Yeah. And I, I don't mean to be focusing too much on the poker stuff. I'm just fascinated by, you know, this, this world you lived in. And, and, uh, but, but to your point, you know, it's interesting, so many people, and this is often said, you know, in the, the domain that we operate in, that people mistake volatility for risk. And I think in, mm-hmm. in the poker landscape, that association is probably more apt, right? Because, you know, uh, it, well, there's, you know, you, let's say the outcome is less certain for, for, to put it, to oversimplify, let's say. But in Bitcoin, the thing that I always found fascinating is people focused on the volatility and they associated what, what has been, by and large, dramatic volatility with commensurate risk. Whereas when I look at Bitcoin, I see dramatic volatility, but I perceive Bitcoin as possibly the most conservative asset that one can own, if for no other reason that it's the only asset that can be fully owned. Right, that you know mm-hmm. it won't be taken from you either directly or surreptitiously via dilution or inflation. And what other asset in the world has that quality? And so really the volatility is just, you know, human psychology coming to terms with this on a global scale of how to treat such a thing. You know, and of course that that's why it's seemingly chaotic, but I always found that to be such a funny little irony that the world thinks by and large that this is the most volatile and therefore the most risky thing around. Whereas I can, can admit the volatility, but see the risk as the exact opposite in the exact opposite way. Man, I, I love the way you said that. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I think that that is so important. And I think a nuance a lot of people miss when they're talking about risk is it's not a binary thing. So when we see volatility in Bitcoin, I, I think the people that perceive it as risky think that a downward movement means zero is the next stop. And it's simply not the case. I mean, there's volatility in the price along the way, and there's risk in that. You know, if I'm investing in something at, let's just sixty nine thousand a coin, and then it goes down to twenty thousand a coin, I've I'm on the on the uh, bottom side of my risk here, 
and um, I, I'm down money, mm-hmm. but that doesn't reflect the success or failure of Bitcoin. That's the price and that's the volatility of, of a market over a short short term. So that, that that's an important thing I think people miss. And I think anyone who's on the outside looking into Bitcoin, they're, they're so, not everyone, but many people are skeptical that it's going to zero. So that's, right. they see the downward price as a, as a staircase, uh, escalator down to, to, to zero when it's, it's a little bit different than that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And you know, it's, it's interesting. Sometimes the retort from our crowd will be, well, whatever. Well, f- first of all, to those people, how would you expect something to monetize from zero to whatever it's ultimately going to become? I mean, naturally that, that, that must be a, a tumultuous journey, a volatile journey. But one of the things I often, well, we always say one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin as kind of a tongue in cheek retort to the people that decry its volatility. Right. And yeah. to be fair, it is a bit tongue in cheek, but at the same time, it's not because it's one's unit of account, whatever your unit of account is or whatever the unit of account is, it kind of gets away with hiding its volatility. So for example, like we, we might look at every asset over the last two years and nearly every asset has experienced a ton of volatility, right? Yeah. And we look at this at, in a pretty fine grained manner. So we, you know, maybe it excludes our crowd who's so kind of obsessed with all this, but most people would look at, you know, real estate or bonds or stocks or crypto and say, wow, hasn't it been volatile versus the stable U.S. dollar? Right. But you're only saying that because it's the U.S. dollar that you're seeing through because one U.S. dollar equals one U.S. dollar. When in natural, actual fact, I think I think, you know, the M2 uh, money supply of U.S. dollars has expanded by rough, you know, 40 percent plus over the last two years. But you're not mm-hmm. appreciating that because that's the lens you're seeing through. So if you just change that and say, well, I don't think that's a very good long term lens to see through for a number of reasons. So I'm instead going to see through the Bitcoin lens because I believe that's a better you know, in, in many different ways, lens to see economic value through, let's say. And as a result of that, then you see the volatility in the U S dollar and every other asset and the volatility in, you know, your economic lens is somewhat hidden because it's premised on the the notion of one Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin, you know? So it's, this is just a thought. It is not really a question, but just to say that it's funny that the, 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 the critics don't realize the degree to which the the volatility of their own economic lens is being hidden from them by virtue of using it in that way. I think the takeaway from what you're saying is perspective is so critical. And, right. and Bitcoin has this amazing way of forcing its forcing people who look into it to start looking at the world in ways they did not have perspective on before. No one was asking these questions, or I shouldn't say no one, but more, most people were not asking these questions or thinking about the things you're talking about, John, until they discovered what the alternative looks like and why what they're used to doesn't have those same properties. Mm -hmm. And I see the same thing, Bitcoin has this effect, the way people look at energy markets. People don't even think about how their energy market works. They plug something into a wall, they pay a bill, that's it. Mm -hmm. Now with Bitcoin mining becoming a more prevalent part of energy grids and markets, now people start to see, wait a second, there's a lot more complexity going on here. Uh, you know, there's there, there's variability in uh, generation capacity and demand for that capacity and how it's priced and all of this. And I, I I think Bitcoin has this just beautiful way of 
incentivizing people and drawing people to look at the world, different parts of the world that they did not even have the perspective to think about yeah. in the past. No, I, I think that's a fantastic point. And, and again, for all of, for those of us who are so deep in the weeds here, I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, just a constantly gratifying intellectual journey because the more this thing develops and the more it reveals what its capabilities and potential capabilities are and potential is those new horizons of learning about stuff just necessarily emerge if you want to fully understand what's going on here and the work you're into, I mean, you know, perhaps this is a good set segue, but many of us, you know, a few years ago, even weren't really considering energy and grids at all. You know, even if those people that were kind of into Bitcoin mining, if you were just in your basement or you had a good power contract, like it was just kind of, as you say, plug in a bunch of miners and you get your Bitcoin. And, you know, the, the thinking around Bitcoin was still monetary and economic and philosophical perhaps, and, you know, libertarian and all this kind of stuff. But now that it's reaching such a scale, the, the benefits and the influences of this system, of this protocol on global energy generation and distribution is becoming evident. And I think a lot of people are starting to step back and be like, holy shit, like this is a very special thing that's happening here. And this is probably going to revolutionize things far beyond just the monetary system. This is seeming like it's going to have a material impact on how en energy infrastructure is built out for humanity, you know? And so uh, maybe you can comment on your well, maybe we go back to the, the initial entry into Bitcoin, why you left poker, how you found okay. Bitcoin, and then, and then you can comment on, on kind of the mind-blowing nature of the work you're currently engaged in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we'll, we'll catch up on that. So in the course of playing uh, poker, internet poker, that's how I discovered Bitcoin. The, the poker community was using Bitcoin so long ago, not as a speculative investment, but as a better way to move money around. Mm -hmm. We operated in a, I mean, even calling internet poker a gray area, I think is too negative a connotation, but there was lack of regulatory clarity around internet poker in the United States. And that caused banks to have ambiguity and lack of clarity on how they're handling it. Right. So a lot of people struggled with moving money around, um, getting bank accounts shut down. Um, even if it wasn't for all of that, you can, you, you can, move money on and off a poker site a lot quicker and cheaper than you could with a dollars and without limits and any of these types of things. So it was just the way better tool for moving money around, especially in an international environment. I need money in the United States. I need money in Europe. I need money in Australia, Asia. I can send it around. It, it, it just blows away the traditional finance system by far. So we're using it a lot and I became exposed to Bitcoin. So I'm chugging along using Bitcoin and, um, as time went on, and to be frank, as the price went up, that caused more and more, uh, that captivated more and more of my attention. Mm -hmm. I started to not just have this Bitcoin thing on the side, but wanting to understand, wait, how does it all work again? And, and that tapped that my computer science backgrounds, I became very interested in how does Bitcoin ultimately work in, in all the way to the lowest level? And that interest just was a total distraction to poker. I was lost the passion for playing because I just wanted to focus on Bitcoin, mm. which is crazy because I honestly just felt I would play poker the rest of my life. I'm like, I'm good at this. I know how to adapt. I know how to learn. You know, ideally be able to uh, uh, 
you know, grow a portfolio of investments outside of poker over time, but I'd always be a poker player. Then I got to this point where I was like, I'm not even interested in this anymore. Like Bitcoin is too important. I want to know about Bitcoin. So I stopped playing, stopped playing poker without any career objective in mind. I'd, I'd done well at poker. I had just wanted to learn about Bitcoin. I wanted to do research about Bitcoin. I was doing software engineering projects around Bitcoin and I was doing mining. And I was happy with that. And as time went on, um, someone I knew from poker said, hey, I am the CEO of this new company called Riot. Uh, would you like to be join the advisory board? Because I know you have an expertise and background in this stuff. And I said, yeah, I would absolutely love to do that. So I you know, joined the advisory board here. And about a month into it, they asked, hey, uh, would you like to join the board of directors? And I said, well, <laughs> I've been a poker player for the past 14 years. I don't know anything about being on the board of directors of a public company, but I think I have a valuable perspective here and I'm going to learn. So joined the board of directors of the company and it was an immediate crash course in running a public company because that was the end of the 2017 bull market. Uh, Bitcoin went down, so the price of the stock went down. There was activist investors involved. There was legal challenges. There was regulatory challenges. There was financial challenges. It was, there, there's no better way to learn by trial by fire. Right. You know, I, I read a lot of material, but really living through this stuff is how you learn a lot. And that was a lot to take on. However, I still had that long-term view of Bitcoin. And I had a view that a publicly traded vehicle in Bitcoin mining could do a lot. It was, it was answering a demand by investors and was a vehicle in which we, we could grow a, a very substantial business. So, you know, tying back to what we were just talking about, I kind of just did my best to tune out the noise, focus on resolving the issues at hand, by keeping that long-term vision. And over the course of that, um, the company, you know, went through various evolutions. And in the final evolution, uh, the board asked me to be CEO to, to drive this Bitcoin uh, mining vision forward. How did you, because I know the, as you said, it was a, you became public, <clears throat> a riot came public as a reverse takeover. I think the company started as like a veterinary diagnostic thing. And then when riot was rebranded, it was going to be an exchange perhaps, you know, and so it seems like you guys were attempting to find, you know, the niche that you wanted to, you know, build a long-term company around. How was it that you came to determining that laser focus on Bitcoin mining was the best way forward? Yeah. So Riot became public through a reverse takeover of this, you know, kind of publicly traded, if you want to call it a shell, it was previously involved in different types of, of life sciences businesses, right. veterinarian business, a drug company, et cetera. Um, and Riot immediately was involved in mining, but had other things as well. Like you noted, we're looking at launching an exchange. We had different investments in the, in the space. There was a number of other projects. It was doing stuff in Bitcoin and blockchain, but including mining. Mining was the main focus, but there, there was a, a lot of kind of distractions going on. Mm -hmm. And as we cleaned up all of the problems over the, the, the two years after that, when we emerged, the question was, what do we want to do? And I think what became apparent was the thing we were best at was Bitcoin mining. That's where we had the expertise and experience and resources. And we were believers in Bitcoin. And Bitcoin mining, in my opinion, is the best way to accumulate Bitcoin and is the best way to get exposure to Bitcoin. So if we wanted to be a part of this future, what we needed to do was build our Bitcoin mining business. 
And we learned a lot very rapidly. And, um, you know, we, I mean, we already had an expertise, but we built upon that and brought in more resources to figure out what our strategy was going to be. But it, it was really, I think, that Bitcoin vision that drove the selection of mining because it's, you know, not only are you a part of the consensus system, but you are about, you are very, very directly tied to the, the future success of Bitcoin. Right. And so kind of connecting back to that, um, that point about it being so intellectually stimulating once you grasp the, the implications of, of all this, you know, as Bitcoin mining is reaching a certain scale and all, you know, all these realizations that people are beginning to have, when did, when did this, uh, business, I guess, move from a kind of just basic understanding, like we devote energy to these machines, which mine Bitcoin and we get income to seeing it more broadly as something that's almost certainly going to be a part of the grid, the energy mix, you know, the, how civilization basically harnesses and distributes energy in the future. Yeah. So I think that really became clear, uh, through the acquisition of a company called Winstone us. We completed that acquisition, uh, May of 2021. So about a year and a half ago, we had been involved with Bitcoin mining, but at the time we just had our machines hosted at other facilities but we knew we wanted to own and build our own infrastructure. We wanted it to be a vertically integrated Bitcoin mining company. Um, and the major transformative step to accomplishing that was acquiring this Winstone facility, not only for its size and capacity and all the infrastructure there, but for the, you know, some 200 people that built and operated that place and their expertise and shared passion for what we were doing. And, that facility is located in uh, Texas, about an hour outside of Austin in a city called Rockdale. And um, one of the assets that came with that acquisition was a long-term, low-cost, fixed power purchase agreement. And with that, we have the opportunity to do so many different meaningful things in ERCOT, in the Texas energy market, things that, uh, initiatives that both uh, I don't know, initiatives, programs we participate in, opportunities that not only improve our bottom line and reduce our energy costs, but help improve and stabilize the energy grid as well. Mm. And um, so through that acquisition, we became, I think, much more closely involved in what is going on in the energy grid and developing and having a power strategy around that. And then that's becoming a very, very big part of our business. Uh, over the summer, when power demands are high, when the markets are the most volatile, at least in ERCOT, and I mean, many other areas as well, there was many hours during the summer where it was more profitable for us to stop mining Bitcoin and effectively sell the power that we had a secured block for to the grid. And by doing that, like I said, we're reducing our costs, but we are receiving market signals to help give you know, provide grid additional uh, energy capacity as needed. Mm -hmm. um, and that was, I, I think that opened a lot of people's eyes to what we were doing. You know, we, we, we mined in the month of June uh, around 320 Bitcoin, but we earned $9 million selling power. And uh, I think that has been a part of one of the big examples about Bitcoin mining is an asset to energy grids. Um, and how there is a very, I, I would just say, beautiful incentive structure that drives optimal outcomes for all the market participants. Yeah. Now, I, I mean, it, it's really mind blowing. You, you consider that 
you now have an economic means of, let's say, increasing base load, uh, mm-hmm. which can be curtailed, which, sorry, which has the capacity to absorb infinite amounts of generated energy, but which can be curtailed at, you know, in, the, in a millisecond effectively and mm-hmm. turned on and off at will, I guess is the, the best way to say it, without any interruption to the processes that that energy is being taken to, uh, to carry out, i.e. Bitcoin mining. And, you know, I'm sure it's going to take some time for the grids to figure out the best way to integrate this and for all the stakeholders to figure out the, the most economic means of establishing those relationships and that integration. But just the notion that you have infinite capacity for offtake and also millisecond uh, ability to curtail or redirect, let's say, you know, curtail or redirect, or maybe perhaps redirect is a more appropriate term, uh, just seems like it's going to bring so much flexibility to grids and energy just distribution, while also economically incentivizing and rewarding the energy generators and producers, the power projects, the people using that energy, in this case, the miners and the end users, the consumers, the grid operators. I mean, it's, it seems almost too good to be true, to be frank. You know, you tell me, tell me what's wrong with it, actually, is maybe what I should ask you. <laughs> you're asking the wrong guy what's wrong with it, because everything you're saying is right. Um, you know, B- Bitcoin mining has this unique flexibility property at scale. There are, I know of no other large energy loads that have the same flexibility. You, you could have a 100 megawatt data center somewhere, um, but you can't shut down that data center right. to respond to market events in, in, in the energy market. You, like th- that, it doesn't work for all the, the customers operated in there. You can't tell Amazon, "Hey, uh, sorry, we're shutting you down. Uh, ERCOT load zone south just crossed two hundred dollars a megawatt hour." Like they don't care. Mm-hmm. They're just they're trying to operate. So, Bitcoin. The work we do is Bitcoin mining is ultimately only as long as the last block we did, last block that was found. There's no, you know, day long project that multi day computing process is taking place. We we are simply receiving work packets from a pool, working on them and sending them back. Uh, and that that's it. And that can be paused, like you said, in, in seconds, milliseconds at any time. So when you when you understand that and then you apply that to a deeper understanding of how energy markets work, you understand what a value add Bitcoin mining is. This is, once again, one of those things where people didn't look at how this part of their life worked until they discovered Bitcoin and they're asking questions about it. Mm-hmm. When you receive power, there's not some magical infinite source of power that's just ready for you to buy it. Power is generated and there's different types of generation sources. There's there, there's coal, there's natural gas, there's nuclear. And in today's day and age, there's a lot more renewable generation coming on. There's wind and solar. And the key thing about those latter two generation sources is they are not consistent. They, you know, depending on their environment, will have a capacity factor, you know, 20% of the day or, or something like that. But you're only getting solar power when the sun is shining. You're only getting wind power when the wind is blowing. And there's no, there's no meaningful way to store that power at scale. So what happens is a lot of times these renewable energy sources have to sell their power at a loss or curtail power 
at all. Mm -hmm. And in fact, in ERCOT, in 2021, more renewable energy was curtailed than Bitcoin miners used in that state. That's crazy. Now, Bitcoin mining will buy that energy 24 hours a day. And because of our flexibility property, we have the ability to curtail when the market, when the power demand is high and that energy certainly becomes a lot more valuable. And that may only be, you know, if you look at all the hours of the year, three to 5% of the hours of of the year, but it makes a big difference to us from a financial perspective uh, by, by being able to sell power, reduce our power cost. And it does not make a big difference on our ability to have a Bitcoin mining operation. And it does make a big difference to the grid and the consumers of power in that grid that need the power during those peak times when renewables are not functioning, but the sun is shining and people want to run their air conditioners. Yeah. It's amazing to have an energy buyer of last resort like that, that can redirect that energy at a moment's notice when it's needed or when the market is signaling that it's more advantageous to sell it in that way. Speaking of that, the process of doing that, how does the automation of that look. I, I'm assuming that when we say, you know, you're getting paid when the when the local price of energy peaks, th- this is through financial products and hedging and such things like that. And so, you know, how how is all that carried out or automated? You know, like how do you respond to all that? So at this stage, we are making a manual decision. We know what Bitcoin mining revenue is on a dollar per megawatt hour basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we you can see real-time, five-minute, 15-minute interval pricing in ERCOT. You know, ERCOT is this deregulated energy market where buyers and sellers can voluntarily interact with each other. There's not a government making a decision and coordinating it. Mm. I think that's what makes ERCOT so fantastic and, and a model for the rest of the world. So right now, we, we are simply looking at these two markets, the Bitcoin mining market and the energy market, and making it a, a decision to, you know, shut off our, our, our miners by, by, by simply not consuming power, we are receiving the benefit of that because we have a power block where uh, for a fixed number of megawatts, we are buying power at a certain price. So if we're not using that power, we are you know, effectively getting the benefit of that in, in, in the marketplace. So yeah. it, it's a quick decision, but it's manual and you know made by humans at this point. So someone's just watching the ERCOT price and you're price and saying, okay, it's better to shut off right now and sell it back to the grid effectively. Exactly. Do you think, because at most, as far as my understanding goes, most grids in the world are not kind of like an open market like ERCOT is. And knowing, you know, as we do, how fundamental energy is to human life flourishing, economic flourishing, it's probably a bit early you know, to assert this, but it doesn't seem like it'll take long for the benefits of so many Bitcoin mining operations setting up in Texas and having this beneficial effect on the grid. You know, do do you think other power grids, I guess the two other in the States or the East and the West, um, I guess what I'm saying is, do do you think the benefits to energy production and distribution will be so obvious as a result of this that these markets that operate in ERCOT as compared to other grids are going to experience so much more economic growth that it's going to put pressure on other markets to structure their, their grids in a similar way. You know, again, being that energy is so fundamental to everything else. I, I, I definitely think that way, but I think the timeline is probably longer than, you know, what would be 
ideal for most. I think right. governments will tend to react slowly and they will certainly deregulate themselves very slowly. So mm-hmm. it, it's, I think it's going to be about developing a track record here in ERCOT. I mean, ERCOT developing its own track record over time and then other uh, markets following that model. And uh, by the way, you know, we, we've been talking about curtailing energy to you know, sell in the grid. There are a number of other programs that we participate in, in as well that also strengthen the grid. You know, one, there's this program in ERCOT called 4CP, where during peak times in the summer months, ERCOT sends a request to, for you to uh, shut off. And if you shut off, you uh, save on transmission charges for power the next year, which is pretty meaningful. Mm-hmm. Additionally, our facility is the largest controllable load in the world. Controllable load, meaning that ERCOT has the ability to shut off that power at its demand. We essentially sell, it's like insurance to the grid, like, hey, we have this load, how much do you wanna buy the right to turn it off for the next day? And we voluntarily make all these decisions. We're not forced to do any of these things, but we voluntarily do these things to improve our economics and support the energy grid of the communities we operate in. And I I think when other energy markets see the ability to do this, it's something and they, they see that this is in practice, you know, for many years successfully working. I, I think it's a benefit that's hard to anno- ignore yeah. because energy supply and demand are two variable things. They are not some line like this always meeting in the middle in the middle and giving grid operators tools to, you know, um, establish that base load, like you said, and um, fill these valleys of demand. It makes the markets a lot better. So the results will be uh, hard to ignore, but governments do not move quickly. Right. Governments are going to government. Um, <laughs> would you, given that, would you ever set up in any other uh, power grid market? Because it seems so, f- I know that many large mining operations are set up in other jurisdictions, and I presume that's purely because they have cheap power rates. But given how advantageous working with an open market grid like ERCOT is, I mean, what would compel you to go to another grid, I guess, is the, the question. Would it simply be just you know, super cheap, reliable power? Yeah, I mean, p- people ask, ask me about this. And my, my first answer is, you know, never say never. So, you know, I, I won't say that we'll never operate outside of Texas. But the benefits for so many reasons are so huge in Texas. You know, we're talking about the energy. I, we, we achieve a very low cost of energy at a very large scale in Texas. There's other places in the United States and the world where I think you can find or there are you know, certainly competitive cost of energy, but very rarely can you build a 700 megawatt, one gigawatt site like we're doing. That, that is our model. We, you know, instead of having 15 small sites all over the place, we have built these large sites because ERCOT, the ERCOT grid has that capacity. Um, and because we want to maximize our economies of scale, get as much efficiencies as we can as, in one part. Mm-hmm. Further, Texas is such a friendly business environment. And, you know, forget even the Bitcoin part. It is a very um, friendly state to have any type of business in. And the Bitcoin support is a huge bonus on top of that. Local local uh, government all the way up to the governor's office in Texas are supportive of Bitcoin and they want to make Texas the Bitcoin state, a Bitcoin mining state. And I, I see the same support from um, officials within ERCOT and other other regulatory entities within within Texas as well. So there's 
that that mitigates so much of the regulatory risks that we have to work with. Right. Bitcoin mining, we deploy a lot of capital. We're, we're not and we're not doing that for a three year benefit. We're, we're trying to build something that's going to last decades and having that regulatory um, risk mitigated with this type of friendly environment. It, it helps a lot. So to get back to your original question, though, would we build somewhere else? Yes. Ultimately, if the economics were right, if the if the regulatory environment was right, if it was better than what we were achieving in Texas, then it would certainly be something we want to take a look at. But I, I think it's hard to beat. It's just hard to beat Texas. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's a great environment. <laughs> I've seen uh, you know photos and tweets of I think Abbott and Cruz and potentially some other politicians in Texas, you know, hanging out with Bitcoiners or at like a Bitcoin. Uh, commons meetup or something like that, where, you know, they, they were part of a discussion. Are, are these people, as you said, I think they probably have a above average openness to just free enterprise basically as we're, you know, being business friendly Texas, but you know, we've just been discussing thus far, this kind of like epiphany that one has when they start to really see how these two forces are coming together and maybe this is more relevant for the people at ERCOT because they'd certainly be watching it more closely. But based on your conversations and your experience with them thus far, are they starting to see just how revolutionary or impactful? Forget about like the monetary case for Bitcoin because, you know, maybe it's who cares if they believe in it or don't or think it's going to be the next, you know, global money of, you know, of the future. But are, are, what are their reactions when you're telling them that you can provide what you provide to them? Like you can provide this controllable load and the, the benefits that will accrue to them as a result. I think they're, they're very supportive because at this point, it's not just a promise. It's a track record that we've delivered on. So the fact that we're not, it's a really key difference, I think, in, in regulator lawmakers eyes is, is saying what you've done as compared to a promise of what you're going to do. Right. So we don't, I don't have to promise anyone that, hey, we're going to do this in the future. I have a track record that I can speak to from Riot and from Bitcoin mining as a whole, where it says, this is what we have been doing and this is what we are doing. And when they see, when they understand the scale and they understand the properties that we're doing it at, they are, they, they, they are very supportive. They, they certainly see the benefit because they, they understand this stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing that just popped up in my mind was I've heard, and you can confirm or, or, refute this, but I've heard that there's been a lot of overbuilding of renewables in West Texas, potentially as a result of subsidies, federal or state. I'm not really sure the, the deal. Um, but do you think it's possible that, you know, this boom in Bitcoin mining, especially in Texas, might actually allow, um, you know, those subsidies to end up not being as potentially harmful as they might otherwise have been, you know, because when you get misallocation and destruction of capital, you know, that by definition is bad. Um, but because of the, the unique, um, interplay between the two, do you think this will kind of almost save from the overly detrimental outcomes of overbuilding in that capacity or in that way? Uh, so the current subsidy structure incentivizes these renewable generation projects quite a bit. Um, so it's kind of, somewhat uneven, uneven playing field 
uh, when you're thinking about deployment allocation of capital, because there's this government force that's causing that capital to be allocated differently than I think it other naturally would. Yeah. Um, so I think that I think what Bitcoin mining does is helps those projects even more. I think by 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 them knowing that but but the financiers of these renewable generation projects knowing that bitcoin miners are going to be buying their energy 24/7 no matter when it's generated no matter what the otherwise market demand is at that time that gives them a lot more confidence in the market deployment that improves their overall economics mm-hmm. however i would say the increased development of this renewable generation is increasing the volatility in um in power power generation. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that will ultimately drive more base load generation, like combined cycle, natural gas, like that as well. So the, I mean, the, this is the way markets will always work. Just when when, when one thing just be, it starts capturing too much, that eventually you're pushing the scale over to drive the incentive for the other thing as well. So I, I, I think we are going to see uh, more generation of all kinds of all different types being uh, developed, developed and deployed in Texas, in in uh, West Texas, particularly with the re- renewable side. There's a lot of solar going in there, but um, th- there's th- there's more natural gas combined cycle development that I think is needed to match the growing renewable development as well. Right. You know, we talked about poker and making bets earlier, and you know, I watched some of the videos on your guys' YouTube channel before. Uh, before firing this up today. And, you know, these facilities are enormous, right? And, and, you know, you're purchasing tens, if not hundreds of thousands of, uh, ASICs, I believe, and, you know, large investments at stake here and a lot of unknowns in Bitcoin's price in Bitcoin's future. Although you and I would probably be less, uh, worried about Bitcoin's long-term future than most, um, Mm -hmm. power markets, geopolitical situations, political situations, all that kind of stuff how does it feel and how do you, uh, you know, come to terms or determine how to make these big bets? What gives you the confidence to build out a gigawatt facility, for example? I mean, the, the core confidence just comes from a belief in Bitcoin. So if I believe Bitcoin's going to succeed and I believe that we can produce Bitcoin uh, cheaper than its market price, then that is a, a foundation of the confidence that's needed. Um, the supporting parts of that are are what we've built here at Riot, our track record of execution, the team that we have. And that, that's what I tell people all the time. You know, our team is the most valuable thing that we have. People think about Bitcoin mining as a bunch of racks with computers stacked up on them. And that's what the end product is. But it takes a team of people. It takes an army of people to make that happen on the scale that that we do. So the fact that we've built this team and we've successfully executed in the past to build these massive facilities, the fact that we've built these different stakeholder relationships, um, both with business partners and with local state government officials to execute and succeed at what we're doing, gives us enormous confidence to you know repeat the model over and over again. There are always various risks, you know, like we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Uh, you open up any public company's 10K, and there is pages and pages of risk factors that have been considered and that, that are valid, but nothing in life is without risk. 
And I've made a lot of bets in my life. And I think, you know, from my perspective, Bitcoin is a very safe bet. And I believe in our team's ability to continue to compete and operate as a Bitcoin miner in that future. Speaking of there's lots of variables, I mean, perhaps now is the time to break into the current environment because it's very interesting on any way you slice it and whatever domain you're in, but particularly for Bitcoin mining, because as of, you know, come off the highs almost a year ago of, you know, 65 plus thousand per Bitcoin and now being at, you know, roughly 1920 hash price coming way down, cost of energy in most places going way up, cost of capital going way up. Um, you know, this is a, I, well, perhaps this is the scenario you type of a worst case or at least a difficult case scenario that you might plan for when you're making these investments and plans. So I don't know, where, where would you like to uh, address the current situation that Bitcoin miners find themselves in today? It, it is a certainly a tough operating environment, but it's not one that, you know, we at Riot or I, I haven't seen before. Bitcoin has been very cyclical historically. There have been these bull bear market cycles. Um, the historically, the halving has kind of been a, a, an inflection point that is um, driving each each end of these markets in, in, to some extent. But you know, we've lived through this. Um, we were talking earlier about risk and bankroll management, being able to not only participate in the massive upside of things, but being able to withstand the downside of variance as well. And we think about that a lot because of our experience in these different market cycles. You know, we at Riot think about how to plan for this. So we have come into this market in a very well capitalized position. We ended the second quarter with 270 million in cash, 130 million in Bitcoin and no long-term debt. Not that debt is bad, but the options that were available to us, you know, over the preceding years, we felt added too much undue risk to our business. So we very consciously made the decision to make sure that we remained well capitalized, did not overextend ourselves and maintain maximum flexibility in order to continue slowly scaling our business over time. And that That's another thing I think is a really important part of being successful at Bitcoin mining. It's always kind of just like uh, effectively always scaling. You're always dollar cost averaging into mining over time. Mm -hmm. You can't just be raising money when the cost of capital is low because the market is high because that's when everything is priced the highest. Right. So then your, your, your capital costs are always going to be the highest. You have to just always be averaging in and you're taking a long-term viewpoint on Bitcoin. You're not taking a short-term viewpoint on, though this is the time to buy, this is the time to sell, et cetera. So, we have put ourselves in this position to where we can always just be continuing to scale piece by piece and building our business as time goes on. And a lot of our competitors do not have that luxury at the moment. A lot of competitors are very, very focused on survival, scaling back expansion plans and just trying to keep their business afloat. So, um, you know, it, it, it's not to say that it's not difficult for Riot as well. You know, that hash price has gone down. So, the Bitcoin we're mining uh, is not worth as much as it was a year ago. Mm -hmm. uh, the network difficulty uh, driven by the global hash rate for Bitcoin mining has gone up. So it, it's harder to mine more and more Bitcoin. But these are cycles that we have lived through before. And I believe we have done an extremely good job of positioning Riot to 
you know, continue to scale through. So while other people are struggling to you know, survive right now, uh, yesterday, Riot announced the groundbreaking at its new one gigawatt facility in Texas, just a couple hours away from our existing facility. So that is the one, that is the first step of many, many steps that'll, that 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 come together to continue to scale and grow our business piece by piece. Yeah. <clears throat> I want to come back to kind of industry talk, but I can't help but ask, you know, in November last year, some people, you know, everyone has differing opinions, of course, but Bitcoin mooning effectively and, you know, everyone thinking 100K was the next stop, Riot stock and pretty much the stock of all miners in the, in the industry mooning as well. What was the atmosphere like, at that time, you know, because right now you give me a very sober assessment, like, you know, we've been responsible, we've been good stewards of, of capital. We've been incrementally growing our operations. We're, we've, we've planned and prepared for these times, but it's hard not to get wrapped up in the, in, in the bull run, you know, it's hard not to get wet. And well, I say that maybe I shouldn't say it for you because again, the poker, uh, experience is a probably quite valuable in that regard. But what was it like in, in November when everything was really ripping? Um, the, the industry environment at that time was, it's all about scale. You weren't hearing so much about people talking about their power strategy, how they were achieving low cost of power, um, their balance sheet flexibility. It was all about scale, buying hash rate, more facilities, buying hash rate, buying hash rate. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the one trick that a lot of people had. So massive leverage was being taken out. A lot of these equipment backed financing loans are extremely expensive, high teens, interest rates with, with very short terms. A lot, lot, of, lot of Bitcoin miners were, were, were running into those to just try and accumulate much hash rate as possible. And Riot was a part of that scale game as well. You know, we purchased a lot of miners actually in Q4 2021. Uh, we purchased about, um, I mean, somewhere in the neighborhood of 50, 60,000 additional machines uh, over that time period. So we, we, we were in there buying equipment as well. But we were also in there two years ago when the equipment was dirt cheap and we were, you know, buying in there uh, at, the, at the low prices as well. So people were all about scale, but, you know, our, our like we, I've been talking about, our experience was, was very valuable during that time because we still kept an eye on the ball on how we were going to achieve a low cost of production. We kept an, our eye on the ball of how we were going to maintain flexibility and a clean a clean balance sheet. So we could have pushed the, the envelope much further and, and we didn't. And um, so Riot does not have the highest stated hash rate on the market. We don't have the highest 2022, 2023. We have one of the highest, but I also believe we have one of the best balance sheets. I want to ask you, this is kind of a, a two-tiered question, but one, how do you think things play out from here. And I know there's a lot to consider, you know, interest rates, difficulty adjustment, Bitcoin price, all, you know, energy price, all sorts of stuff. Um, and so what do you think is going to happen? And then in a, in a hypothetical that I might point, you know, assert, let's say interest rates creep up a little bit more or stay the same. Let's say Bitcoin takes one more kind of leg down into the low teens. Let's say difficulty continues to go up, but maybe not as dramatically over the next few months. What happens in your mind to the industry? Because you get the sense, both hearing from you and my own assessment, that things are somewhat precarious for some of the players out there today. You know, as it relates to, to, uh, to debt, let's say, as it relates to 
miners that they have secured and can no longer, you know, pay for delivery of. And so how do you think this will play out, you know, in terms of a lot more cheap miners coming on the market, consolidation within the pubcos and maybe even, you know, smaller players, you know, floor is yours basically to paint me a picture of how you think things might go from here. All the disclaimers, notwithstanding, you don't know the future, not financial advice, et cetera. I, I mean, a, a lot of those things you said at the, at the end, I think are exactly what we see in our future here. I think, um, you know, if Bitcoin, if the Bitcoin price stays the same, the difficulty I think is continuing to creep up at least over the end of this year. And that is going to tighten economics for miners a lot more. I, I think we're seeing the, the cracks right now. And the, the fact is there's some 30 publicly traded Bitcoin mining companies now. That's a massive amount. Like that, that, that is the result of cheap money chasing a bull market in 2021. Mm-hmm. That, that's what drove a lot of that. And I think, um, like we were just speaking about, actually, a, a lot of that was focused on scale, which led a lot of operators to make poor decisions, what they're, they're, they're going to have to be faced with now. So I, I think we're going to see um, more pain amongst the pubcos. I think there's companies that will, certain companies that it will make sense for the, there to be consolidation among. I think there are certain companies that certainly don't make it. Um, but all the while, you still have all of this hash rate floating around. It was the Bitmain S19 was this you know flagship success miner uh, from Bitmain that all of so many of these companies were buying. You know, not all of them, but so many of them. And that is now an asset that is going to, I think, be floating around. Um, so I, I, I think I think the network ha- global hash rate is going to reach a point, and then it is going to stay there from some time. But the owners of that hash rate is going to be circulating amongst these assets being traded around. Uh, back and forth as different people try to make them work. So um, that's why it's important when you're evaluating a Bitcoin mining investment to uh, do your diligence, you know, make make a very informed decision about the company you're investing in. Um, I don't know the specifics of how all these pieces are going to come together in the future, which companies that make sense to, to merge, who, who makes sense to acquire who, who's necessarily going to make it and who's going to not. But I think the environment 12 months from now will look very different than it looks right now. And when we ease up on the halving in 2024, that is going to be the ultimate test of who is going to make it through here. And the end result will be something good. The end result is going to be that there was a a washout of inefficient operators and you're left with more of the um, you're 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 left with those companies that have proven uh, their ability to operate. And you're left with a, a smaller, uh, but more high quality standard uh, of, of Bitcoin mining companies. Right. And, at, you know, as a CEO of, of one of these companies, do you spend any time currently or is it too early or still too many unknowns to kind of say those are assets we would like if they became impaired or distressed? Or do you just kind of wait for the, the dust to settle? Uh, we look at that. I look at that as, you know, as a team, we look at that and think about that all the time because we want to make sure that we have the full set of information and we're evaluating these things constantly. Um, so there is an opportunity that Riot finds something that is creative to our shareholders. At the same time, we have such a massive pipeline of expansion that picking up these assets just for the sake of scale 
doesn't make sense for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we, we're just kicking off a new one gigawatt facility. So we have a lot to work with there. So, you know, if there's an opportunity to get a site for 100 megawatts, that's kind of like, well, okay, that, that might be good, but what are we going to do with that when we have all sorts of other, we have our main focus right here. Right. Um, but the math is math. And ultimately, you know, what I've learned is uh, if you can withstand variance and you can make a, a positive uh, expected value decision, then that's a good decision to consider making. So we're, we, we keep our ear to the ground. We keep looking at things. And if the right thing comes along, it comes along. If not, I think we are in a very good position with our own internal expansion or our own organic growth. Right, right. Um, you know, men, talking about people that may need, you know, may go under or may need to uh, pursue consolidation in, in markets like this. What are your thoughts on consolidation in the mining industry as it relates to the concentration of hash power and therefore, you know, increased threat of centralization of hash power, regulatory uh, involvement, all that kind of stuff? Well, uh, so a couple of thoughts. I think the first, the Bitcoin mining network has become so large at this point and it's still growing that even the biggest players are not that meaningful collections of hash rate. Mm. Riot has, we last reported a hash rate capacity of 5.6 exahash. Right now, the global hash rate is estimated around like, let's say, 260 or something like that. So that's 2%. So one of the biggest Bitcoin mining companies in the world is 2% of the global hash rate. You know, okay, we're scaling, so we'll ultimately hopefully be a bit bigger than that, but um, we're, we're, we're still small in regards. So even if you put us and another us together, that's still, you know, a, a very small percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, my second thought on that is, I think we've learned from the history of Bitcoin that the risk of hash rate is more mobile than people realize. Um, There was a big concern in 2017 that all this hash rate that was supporting an alternative view of a path Bitcoin could go was going to be able to congregate and, you know, guide that decision. Mm -hmm. And it did not. In fact, the majority of the hash rate was, was supporting this divergence at that point. And ultimately, kind of the, the, the community, the, the Bitcoin network itself decided the consensus of, you know, what, what the right direction w- w- was going to go. So I think um, hash rate is very mobile and it can change uh, its mind pretty quickly. And the, the way we are, Bitcoin's operating now, it, it is more immune than ever uh, from an attack of a concentration of hash rate. And finally, I think what's happening with Stratum V2 is very important to the decentralization of Bitcoin and even further mitigates the risk that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. The fact that every individual miner running Stratum V2 and their own node can uh, select transaction and ordering of transactions in the block they construct gives a lot more power to the individual miner. And that, and that in fact, takes power away from, in, in my opinion, takes power away from concentration of hash rate. So for all of those factors, I am not concerned about a centralization of, of mining going forward. I think the the network is growing organically and it is growing kind of safely as intended. It, would someone like Riot be, would they use something like Stratum V2? Uh, I think, I think, 
the the short answer is yes because I think that the future is all Bitcoin miners are going to use Stratum B2. The the transaction selection and ordering is a benefit of itself, but there's additional efficiency and security benefits that is going to make it, you know, the the, the clear choice. Just just the Stratum was the clear choice. Stratum B2 will be the clear choice. So Riot will will certainly be a part of that. And that's something that we're looking at and testing now, you know, in order to be prepared for that. Um, I think when when you look at the advocacy for Stratum V2, um, I think it, it, it's really going to be the benefits of a smaller miner C that it, it is going to drive more and more uh, sure. of them to be using it. I, I, I really believe it's going to be a bottom-up adoption of Stratum V2 because those guys will see the benefits and the excitement of it first, mm-hmm. and that'll drive it all the way up. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you know we're talking about this one gigawatt facility and you know, I think on your website, it was by Q1 2023, you guys are going to have all like 2.5, 3X, the exahash that you have currently? Yeah. So, yeah. So we, we last reported a hash rate capacity of 5.6 exahash. Q1 2023, we expect to reach 12 and a half exahash. That's a lot of plugging in between now and 2023, no? It, it, it is. It is incredible. And it, it's <laughs> truly amazing to see. I mean, I, I say this obviously biased because I'm a believer in Riot and I, and I love Riot and I love our team and what their, our operations team is accomplishing on the ground at our Rockdale facility. But they are building a massive expansion and they are deploying thousands of miners constantly. And when I see that, not only am I proud of Riot, but I'm proud that Bitcoin has reached this industrial scale. I'm proud that Bitcoin has reached the point where mining facilities have hundreds of people that are building and operating those things like a true traditional American industry. Mm. And that's, I think, a story that not enough people know about yet and something that we're, we're working on, on on demonstrating and showcasing more and more. How many machines roughly will be going toward that effort? Uh, so when we are fully deployed, it'll be approximately 115,000 machines. Is it hard to get that many machines? I mean, perhaps not. Well, are you getting them all new? And so I guess the question stands, is it hard to get it from the, the supplier? I guess Bitmain? We, we, we've been getting them all new. And this includes machines that we started purchasing in April 2020 and all the way up through machines that we entered into purchase agreements for at the end of 2021. So these purchase agreements, are they're, they're usually um, made pretty far in advance, you know, nine, six, nine, 12 months out. In some cases, 18 months out. So... We've already purchased these miners in the past, and now they're they're finally coming in. So it took a long time to, it took a while to, to you know enter into these agreements over over you know one or two year time period. Uh, it's taken a lot of work to build the facilities to even help, uh, house them. So yeah, a, a lot a lot of work goes into getting one hundred fifteen thousand miners operational. Yeah, I bet. Um, you guys do air cooled and immersion cooling, right? Yes. Can you just, you know, I'm not too familiar with the the differences, you know, the economic differences, the operational. What's the motivation behind taking both approaches? So historically, Bitcoin mining has been really air-cooled focused, where your goal is to really bring in the ambient air, ideally cooled, into an air-cooled building, have that run through and through the side of the building, have that run over the miners, and then separate the hot air that's exhausted from the miners from that incoming cooler air, so it's not recirculated. That hot air is you know exhausted out of the top of the building. That's the air cooling approach. 
And we have done a number of interesting uh, things to make that work in Texas. Um, the heat is obviously a, 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 diff, a, a challenge to deal with in Texas, but you know, we, we use the number of tools to make air cooling work. Um, a more expensive option, but an option that's quite a bit more benefits is called immersion cooling. And immersion cooling has been around for a very long time. People use immersion cooling in home PCs and gaming PCs, in traditional data centers. People have used it in Bitcoin mining for, for many years. But, but last year we made the decision we wanted to build the largest deployment of immersion cooling infrastructure for Bitcoin mining in the world. So we constructed 200 megawatts. That was two buildings that would host approximately 50 or 48,000 uh, Bitmain S19 uh, miners in immersion cooling. Um, so as I touched on, that infrastructure costs a bit more to build. However, there are a ton of operational benefits. First and foremost, you're keeping those machines operating in a more cooler, stable environment than they would be getting air cooled. Um, and by simply giving those machines the cooler operating and more stable environment, you reduce the wear on the machines. That you know not only makes them last longer, so it makes our investment in the machine have a longer uh, lifespan, but also reduces the amount of maintenance that needs to be done repairing these machines all the time. The second major financial benefit is the ability to increase the hash rate of these machines because they're operating cooler. You know, just like people overclock gaming PCs after, you know, using even people overclock air cooled gaming PCs, but um, adding water cooling to them, other types of techniques to cool their uh, components down, they can increase the, the, the uh, performance of their machines, whether it's the GPU, the CPU, what have you. So we can do a very similar thing in Bitcoin mining by keeping these mo miners operating cooler. We're able to push the limit on what the machine is getting out of those chips and therefore get more hash rate. So as a result, we are able to increase our hash rate, which is our major driver of mining Bitcoin and therefore a major driver of achieving financial results mm. through this infrastructure we've developed. We don't have to solely rely on just buying miners to increase our hash rate. So more expensive to build, but huge benefits. And that's why our new one gigawatt site, we are building 100% immersion. Oh, wow. And so yeah. moving forward, any additional build-outs you guys do are likely going to be the same? Likely. I mean, it's hard to say. So the expansion that we launched last year, we built four new buildings. Half were air-cooled, half were immersion. And the air-cooled buildings use this new rack system. You know, we're always learning. Every building that we build, we learn something about how, what could be done better. Mm -hmm. And every building is an iteration that improves upon the previous. And I got to be honest, our latest air-cooled buildings are very cool. We have this, I, I mean, God, they're operating cool, but they're also just right. awesome. Yeah. Uh, we have developed our own proprietary rack system. It's a lot more efficient for managing and controlling miners, especially at a large scale. And we made some different changes and we, it's really amazing to see that there's no, there's no replacement of the awe of seeing, you know, racks of miners 20 feet high as far as the eye can see. So we, you know, we've been joking internally lately because we're like, man, we're all about immersion. We love it. But this air cooled building is pretty cool. So I'll say I, I, once again, never say never. But right. we're, we're, we're pretty much just focused on immersion cooling going forward. Well, I'm sure you're right in that it's badass as hell to, to see it. But 
nothing beats the silence of the immersion. No, I mean, or maybe not silence, yeah. but way less noise. No, near silence. I mean, we joke. It's like walking into a day spa. You, you walk into one air cool building and it's, you know, some 27,000 fans and high pitched noise and yeah. you have to wear ear protection to work in there. You work at, walk in an immersion building, silence. Everyone's fighting for the opportunity to work in the immersion cool place. Um, yeah. You know, a second ago you mentioned that you want, well, you're happy that this is on a scale and um, you've built a team that can kind of reinvigorate that large scale project, almost American sort of pride in building great works and doing, you know, uh, adding economic value, let's say. Um, but I wonder how much of that has been um, somewhat muted as a result of the, I don't want to say the environment, because it's its difficult to know how pervasive it really is. But obviously for a certain number of people in the world today, and it certainly seems uh, in certain media outlets that, you know, energy equals, energy use equals bad sort of thing going on in the world today. And that's, mm -hmm. you know, that's a bit of a simplistic characterization, a, a more subtle one is, you know, certain types of energy use equals bad and certain types of energy use are equals good. Although I think when you really scratch the surface on that, it winds up more in the former than, than the latter. But what has been your experience? And, you know, maybe you can just touch on the whole quote ESG argument here, but what has been your experience in operating a business that one uses a ton of energy and two, for a lot of people uses energy on something that's completely worthless, you know, because <laughs> you know, just as well as I do that a lot of people do not see the merits of Bitcoin. They think this is a Ponzi scheme, speculation, internet tokens, you know, they think it's nonsense. Um, I think you and I would say the complete opposite of that. There's pot potentially not like no more worthwhile use of energy or very few, but to those people, you're wasting a ton of energy on something totally worthless. And, what has been your interaction with these ideas or, or those assertions as you, you know, attempt to build a, a massive Bitcoin mining company? Yeah. So, I mean, going back to the first part of what you said, there are, you know, two, you, you said there's two camps, one that's saying in any energy, increased energy use is bad and other, that's smaller that says, well, this type of energy use is bad. And I, I think effectively camp one is seeing the second part. They just don't understand it. The, the advancement in the, the advancement of humankind has been marked by an increase in energy use. All the benefits that we appreciate as a society, the quality of life, the extension of life, we all achieve this by society harnessing energy and efficiently deploying that energy to, to drive product and services. Bitcoin is the next evolution of that. Just as the internet has used more energy than was used before the internet. Um, Bitcoin uses energy to drive a freedom of finance, a freedom of doing commerce without any trusted parties or um, intermediaries involved in that. That's a very important accomplishment. Sovereign wealth um, with a fixed supply uh, that's censorship resistant in, in, in transacting. Um, so like you said, John, I mean, you and I know that benefit. The people that think Bitcoin is worthless or a scam or whatever they want to call it, you will never convince them that Bitcoin mining has any value. To them, it is simply a drain of resources. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and that's very difficult. And so, you know, that's why we focus and we're deploying more resources on education. And it's not only educating about Bitcoin mining and energy grids. That, that, that's a big part of the advocacy we have to get out there. But we also have to teach people about Bitcoin because we cannot, you know, to the naysayers who, who, who don't believe Bitcoin has any value, then they're not going to believe the second part as well. So right. we're, we're putting efforts to try and educate as wide of a base of, of commentators as possible. And we think that is going to help drive us a, a lot of success. And I, I will say for a lot of the lawmakers that we interact with, they get it. It, it is, it is uh, so refreshing and amazing to talk to a congressman that's like, yes, I get it. Bitcoin is the future. Yes, I get it. Bitcoin mining is going to transform energy grids. That uh, is a credi- incredibly fulfilling result. And I think um, it's the onus on the industry participants here to continue talking about this, continuing to continue educating, to break down these barriers and you know help advance Bitcoin and help advance everyone's understanding of how Bitcoin mining impacts them. Yeah, well said. And I, I think, as you said earlier, you're probably operating in one of the more favorable favorable jurisdictions where you perhaps are encountering that sort of rhetoric less because I'm sure we both know several examples around the world where either operations have been directly shut down or forced to shut down as a result of, you know, policies or regulations that have come down that are effectively grounded in ignorance about what's really happening here. But, you know, just look at Twitter, you know, scroll Twitter for a few minutes and you'll realize that uh, something being stupid or ignorant is certainly not a, that doesn't limit the amount of it we see showing up in the world today. And so, I mean, again, you're probably operating in one of the best jurisdictions, but you know, one of the, what's the word, one of the promoters perhaps of this ESG stuff. And I, I think mention maybe should go to Michael Saylor and a bunch of you public miners and even non-public miners have, I think, tried to execute on what you just articulated by coming together and putting this mining council together. And Originally, like many Bitcoiners, I was somewhat didn't didn't wasn't sure how I felt because we don't like to see that kind of uh, acquiescing to the pressures of you know the external world, right? The whole thing about Bitcoin is kind of you know you don't have to it, it's sovereign it's sovereign for a, re- a reason, and we take sovereignty and freedom uh, very seriously. But I think what it's produced has been information that hopefully is helping to educate people about what's really going on here, you know, and you probably, that information probably isn't going to change people's minds on the, on the part that you mentioned where if they don't value Bitcoin, they're just going to think it's all a waste. Those people, you know, they don't care if it's 67% renewable. They don't care if it's only using as much as Christmas lights and washing machines. They don't care any of it. They just, if, if the out, if the product is worthless, the input is a waste and that's how they see it. But for any of the honest actors out there in the world who genuinely have concerns about what they perceive to be, quote unquote, climate change or climate catastrophe or however you want to characterize it, and they feel that for whatever reason they've get, received false or misleading information in the past that this industry is, I don't know, contributing to that more than the average industry, then I think collecting that information, getting that data from all of you guys and just putting it in very simple terms and putting it in the proper context, hopefully will help inform those people and 
not only assuage their fears, but, you know, maybe even get them as excited about, um, what this industry really represents as, as, you know, we, we started off this conversation with, because again, as is so often the case with Bitcoin, one's initial perception, the truth is often the opposite of what that is. Mm -hmm. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, so I, I, I've warmed up to the idea of you guys all coming together and, and, and putting some of that data forward so that people it's more available to people. And yeah, I, I totally appreciated what the community's uh, reaction was to that when it first came out, because, you know, like I said, I, I came up in Bitcoin through the era of Segwit2x and the New York agreement and all of that. And people are very adverse to groups of miners, you know, coming together to talk about anything. Right, exactly. So could, could it have been branded differently? <laughs> Probably. But, you know, I'm glad that, you know, we, we told people back then, this is all it's going to be, a source of information and I think I think we've lived up to that and be very careful to structure the group around solely doing that, providing information. And I think we've, we, we've bundled that with not only uh, a quarterly report of these different statistics, but an opportunity for different miners or groups to you know, talk to talk about what they're doing, talk about different initiatives to get people excited about what's going on in Bitcoin mining and provide that, that level of transparency to the industry. Yeah. And, you know, it probably hasn't hurt that the Giga Chad was leading the charge because he has a way, <laughs> he has a way with people and, you know, people love him. So maybe, you know, it's easier to get away with stuff. But, um, what, my last question about all that is, um, obviously, you know, BlackRock has been one of the big ESG promoters over the last couple of years and BlackRock and Vanguard are pretty much major shareholders on every public company, you know, out there today. And, correct me if I'm wrong, the case, that's the case with Riot. Do you, and you know, we could broaden this out to any investors. Do you receive pressures of that kind from, and again, whatever you can or cannot disclose is, you know, you just let me know, but do you receive such pressures from investors to conform to certain, uh, I don't know what to call them. What, what, what are movements or, or, uh, suggestions or, because they're not laws or regulations, but, you know, investing philosophies, I, I guess you would say. So, I mean, simply by being in the Russell uh, 3000, you get an investment, I mean, Vanguard and BlackRock buy your stocks. Right. I mean, I, I forget what the number is. They, they, they have, they are generally going to be the two biggest shareholders of every kind of company out there. Riot is included in that. Vanguard and BlackRock are the two groups, the biggest shareholders. Um, I don't think we're necessarily uh, meaningful enough in that portfolio to receive too too much active investment. I think these are generally passive funds that are, that are that are moving money around. So um, you know, like many institutional in investors, they have uh, a list of questions that uh, inform to what what their investing criteria is. And I think once again, it's an opportunity for us to educate about Bitcoin and Bitcoin mining, talking about the benefit that we have on the grid and how we are improving energy markets and doing so. So, yeah, I mean, they are big investors in Riot, um, but I think we're, we're, we're very small fish in the, the big pond, the very big pond of, of their portfolios. Right. Um, speaking of, I guess, regulatory related issues, uh, even though again, ESG doesn't really fall into that category, but the, the recent accounting changes, um, or I don't know if they've come into effect yet, but how does that impact what you, you know, 
the treatment that you guys give to your reporting. We're, we're, we're very happy about that. You know, I, when I, once again, Michael Saylor leading the community <laughs> saying, Hey, we, we need to be talking to FASB to, to, to get these things changed. That was at the start of this year. When I saw that, I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm all about this. Um, I have I, I don't know how long this is going to take though. This could take many years and amazing 10 months later, 11 months later, uh, FASB issues that guidance to, um, I don't know when the effective date is either. I, I, I know it's not this year. Mm-hmm. It's I think it's within about six months or so. Um, and that, that's a huge improvement for to, to anyone who doesn't know. Historically, publicly traded Bitcoin miners, uh, uh, following GAAP uh, accounting principles, had held their Bitcoin on their balance sheet at the price it was acquired at. However, if the if the price went below that acquisition price at any point during a financial reporting period, you have to take an impairment charge and take the value of that down. So if you got your Bitcoin at 20,000 and it went down to 15,000, even if it went back up, you have to take a loss on that 5,000 a coin and you're now holding that Bitcoin at 15,000 a coin and it can never go up. It was um, a uh, indefinite intangible asset. It is how it was basically being classified like you know IP or something like that. Mm-hmm. So now it is going to be mark to market, fair value accounting every financial period. So we'll have the ability to get that gain. That's still a lot of noise in our financials. You know, simply by holding Bitcoin on our balance sheet, even if we're not selling it, we are going to have gains and losses over the volatility of Bitcoin over these different uh, financial reporting periods. Uh, but it, the fact that we can take the gain now is, is a big improvement. Um, we... That being said, you know, we're a Bitcoin mining company. So what we ultimately want to demonstrate is our financial results from Bitcoin mining. But we can't we can't change the fact that our net income is now impacted by the volatility in this Bitcoin as well. So, you know, we have to kind of, you know, point to investors. Hey, this is our net income. Uh, by the way, these are the different things that went into getting that net income and they can make a decision for themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how much the change of value of cryptocurrencies isn't, isn't impacting their investment or not. But uh, so all we can do is provide the information. But this is this is a uh, a great outcome. Uh, happened way sooner than I anticipated. And I'm looking forward to this change going into effect. Nice. Um, probably should have asked this earlier when we were talking about, you know, budgeting and, and planning and investing and stuff. And I said, you know, perhaps you won't be able to comment, but, you know, when when companies make plans for the future, they have to make certain assumptions. And I'm wondering for companies like yours, do you have to at least uh, use a kind of in place future Bitcoin price for any of your forecasting, modeling, potential investments? And and if so, what can you share with us what your brainiacs over there have <laughs> have come up with? So, so we, we do have to because, you know, it, it's very important for, for modeling our business that we're forecasting, you know, what the, the future block rewards are. Right. And that is uh, um, our proportion of those award, rewards, which, which is going to be driven by the network, the global hash rate or network difficulty. So we can't have the difficulty increasing, though, forever if there's not some sort of corresponding price increase as well, because it wouldn't make sense that, you know, hash rate would keep being invested in if uh, the economics weren't improving or, in fact, getting worse. So we use very conservative forecasts. 
Uh, so nothing that, 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 that's going to excite you by any means. I think we take a, a very, very conservative approach and then we participate in the upside. I think that strategy has what's led us into the uh, relatively comfortable position that we are in today. Yeah. Well, that's not super exciting, but I understand, <laughs> I, I <laughs> I understand why you have to answer that way. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, my last one for you, Jason, is, you know, you're so intimately, you're so involved in, in this and it's, you're, you're, you have such a front row seat basically at the precipice of two massive phenomenons. And that is the emergence of an upgraded form of, of money, the likes of which we've never seen as it's monetizing and the confluence of that or the implications of that in relation to energy markets, which as you mentioned a few moments ago, is the primary predicate for the flourishing of human civilization. So you could, you could, I think quite easily make the case that money and energy are the two things, you know, the quality or avail, you know, the quality of the former availability of the latter are the two primary things that determine the health, the, the success, the flourishing of a civilization. And so that's quite a two things to be at the nexus of. And so I'm just, Curious, like, you know, when you aren't so uh, immersed in the day-to-day -day operations of things and, you know, maybe you're kicking back whatever you do to relax and you're thinking about how this unfolds in the next five, 10 years. And you, you can frame that in relation to riot or this broader phenomenon that you're participating in. What do you see? How, how, how does this look like in your mind as we move forward? Man, I... Um I do think about that, the position that we're in, the position that I'm in, um, you know, m maybe only for a fleeting moment here and there. I, I, I basically, you know, internally am so resolved in the future success of Bitcoin that I have, you know, I kind of just have that as this foundation of what I do. And then I am just thinking about Riot, you know, not, not just day to day, but long term planning about that as well. So Riot occupies a very large portion of my headspace continually every hour of the day that that is the, the realm that i'm often thinking of but in thinking about that long-term future and how we can play a part I, I i do i do see major ways that bitcoin and bitcoin mining are going to change the way the world functions in general i think over a long enough time frame bitcoin mining is going to be such an integral part of energy generation and energy grids, it, 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 it's going to, you know, ultimately kind of be indistinguishable. Like it is just going to be a no brainer thing to have Bitcoin mining as a part of, of, of energy infrastructure because it has the stabilizing impact and it has this positive economic benefit to the operator. So that is what I am really the most excited about is Bitcoin mining, breaking through some negative stereotypes, breaking through criticism, breaking through un uninformed uh, opinions about it and becoming the stable, the staple of energy infrastructure. And like you said, John, energy is the number one, you know, driving force of life. The number one thing that um, allows us as humans to uh, survive, enjoy life, interact with each other. Um, I think you use the word flourish as a very uh, succinct way of describing it and being a part of improving that, I, I think is a very meaningful purpose. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And to that end, um, very excited to see how things go broadly speaking, but also for you guys with this enormous project that you're currently working on. And, um, you know, I thank you for the time today. It's been great to chat and I hope that all that plugging in between now and, uh, sometime in Q1 next year goes well. All right. Well, thank you very much for having me, John. That, that was a great conversation. All right, brother. Take care. See ya. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Jason. If you'd like to hear more from him, follow him on Twitter at J-A-S-O-N-L-E-S underscore. And to keep up on all the great work being done by he and the team at Riot, visit riotblockchain.com. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.